Greetings and welcome to Author in the Room, everyone. A monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Chuck Hilo. I'll be your moderator for today's call, and we're delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge or what is published in a recent JAMA article into actionable steps that we can all use to improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room calls on, occur on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. That's 11 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time, with the next call being on Wednesday, November 18th, featuring Dr. Michael Krasner discussing his study, Association of an Educational Program in Mindful Communication with Burnout, Empathy, and attitudes among primary care physicians. So please join us. Uh, many organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we encourage you to do so as well. Today, our featured author is Dr. John Iskander, discussing the article, Post-Licensure Safety Surveillance for Quadrivalent Human Papillomavirus Virus Recombinant Vaccine, published in the August 19, 2009 issue of JAMA. Please note that Dr. Barbara Slade, first author of this article, was supposed to join us in today's call, but unfortunately was unable to do so, and we're very thankful to Dr. Iskander for stepping in to lead that call. Welcome, Dr. Iskander. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Kylo. Yes. Uh, Dr. John Iskander is the Senior Medical Consultant at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He has held several positions since joining the CDC in 2000, including team lead for the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System and acting director for the CDC's Immunization Safety Office. A commander in the U.S. Public uh, Health Service, he previously had field experience responding to anthrax and monkeypox cases, uh, which is of great interest, I think, in his background. Uh, Previously, John served as a medical epidemiologist for the South Carolina Department of Health, where he drafted South Carolina's first pandemic influenza plan, and he's been active in the national pandemic planning efforts since 1999. Dr. Iskander is a steering committee member of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, and John is a pediatrician who continues to practice part-time. Uh, the purpose of author in the room again is to hear from you direct, is for you to hear directly from a JAMA author about the research findings that we can use to improve patient care and clinical practice. Today, Dr. Iskander and I will help you translate what's in this paper into changes applicable in your practice. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Iskander will spend about 10 minutes summarizing the study's findings and providing context for understanding the clinical applications of this work. We'll then spend the remainder of the call working with you to draw out implications for real-world practice setting using your real-life experiences and questions to explore this area. We want to express uh, how important your participation in these calls is. This is a great forum in which to get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from the lead author and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps you might take in using this information towards the improvement of care. So your participation in these calls uh, in terms of questions but also offering your experience in this area will be very helpful to the call. We have approximately 30 phone lines uh, connected into the call today with several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on both IHI and JAMA websites as streaming audios or podcasts. Complete details are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are available there as well. So let's get started. Dr. Iskander will overview his article at this time. John? Uh, Thank you again, Dr. Kylo. Uh, In 
June 2006, the FDA uh, licensed and the CDC uh, recommended uh, for use in females aged 9 to 26 years uh, quadrivalent human papillomavirus vaccine. Uh, at that time, uh, CDC uh, presented its plan for comprehensive uh, post-licensure safety monitoring of the vaccine. Uh, the study I'm going to summarize for you now is a part uh, of that comprehensive uh, safety monitoring plan. So the uh, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, which many of you uh, in practice or in frontline public health positions may be familiar with, is a national uh, passive surveillance uh, system for reporting of adverse events uh, following immunization that has been in existence for almost the past 20 years and is jointly managed uh, by the CDC and the Food and Drug Administration. So in this article, we uh, assessed through a variety of methods the first two and a half years of uh, spontaneous uh, safety reporting from healthcare providers and others about uh, Gardasil quadrivalent HPV vaccine. The overview of the method included descriptive epidemiology of the reports, case-level review for a number of different, particularly more serious conditions of interest, and uh, some statistical methodology uh, referred to as uh, advanced signal detection, uh, sometimes referred to in the literature as uh, data mining. Uh, when I talk about uh, more serious reports, uh, it's important to recognize that that's uh, a, a regulatory definition of the word uh, serious uh, and that the designation of a particular report is serious uh, does not imply any necessary causal connection to the vaccine. Uh, for the purposes of this analysis, we use uh, the same uh, definition of this term that's used in uh, clinical trials and uh, also used uh, throughout, throughout the world for um, uh, product uh, safety monitoring in clinical trials. Uh, for the two and a half year uh, period of time covered by this analysis, there were a total of just over 23 million uh, doses of the vaccine uh, distributed in the United States. Uh, this represents doses distributed, not necessarily doses used. And uh, this was the denominator that was used for um, calculation of uh, reporting rates for our analysis. Uh, just a, a brief word about some of the advanced signal detection or data mining techniques. Um, this is uh, uh, borrowing a specialized method from the field of uh, pharmacoepidemiology. It's essentially a proportional, specialized type of proportional morbidity or analysis in which uh, numerators and denominators are generated uh, from within the VAERS system. And so it's important to recognize that uh, statistics uh, associated with uh, advanced signal detection or uh, data mining do not represent uh, direct measures of risks. Uh, so moving on uh, now to, to an overview of the results. Um, 
during the period of the study, over, uh, over 12,000 reports were received. Um, this represents a, a, a dose-adjusted reporting rate of just over uh, 50 per 100,000, and that is about uh, three times higher than the uh, overall reporting rate uh, for all vaccines within the VAERS system, and uh, that relates most likely to uh, publicity centered around the vaccine, uh, interest in the vaccine, and the vaccine being, uh, being novel uh, in many ways. basic ways we look at uh, reports, starting with the uh, broadest measures, is we look at what proportion of the reports are classified as serious versus non-serious. Uh, in this case, 93% um, of the reports were classified as uh, non-serious. Um, the overall average uh, for the VAERS system uh, across all vaccines is between uh, 10 and 15%. So now moving on from the discussion of the overall reporting rates and the overall serious-non-serious uh, -serious breakdown, um, we looked at uh, a variety of uh, different events, including um, the most commonly reported uh, adverse uh, events that were associated uh, with the vaccine, and these included syncope, uh, local reactions, uh, mild systemic uh, events including dizziness, dizziness, nausea, and headache, uh, various types of uh, hypersensitivity reactions. Uh, and this, uh, it's important to recognize that this general, uh, uh, what we would refer to as the safety profile or the most common reported events is uh, consistent with both uh, pre-licensure data for this vaccine and, and broadly consistent, actually, with uh, safety profiles of, of other vaccines uh, in VAERS. Um, moving on to discuss some more um, uh, serious uh, adverse events that received uh, publicity and also received um, uh, greater uh, scrutiny uh, within uh, our analysis, um, hypersensitivity reactions, particularly anaphylaxis uh, and Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, part of the analytic uh, methods used here was to apply a standardized international um, case definition. Uh, this uh, is a project termed the Brighton Collaboration. And uh, what's notable is that uh, for both uh, anaphylaxis and Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, substantial portions of uh, reports that uh, uh, came into the system uh, labeled uh, with those diagnoses did not necessarily meet criteria. Uh, that can be due to uh, the underlying events having other medical causes. It can also uh, very often with the VAERS system simply be due to a uh, lack of sufficient uh, information. So, for example, out of uh, 42 reports of Guillain-Barre syndrome, ultimately only uh, 12 met any level of the uh, Brighton Collaboration uh, case definition. And uh, when you uh, compare this to uh, an age-adjusted expected rate, uh, there's no evidence of 
an elevated risk or uh, signal for Guillain-Barre syndrome following this vaccine. Um, we, uh, in some cases, included extremely rarely aborted events uh, because they have uh, attracted, again, um, uh, attention in the media or on the Internet. Uh, there were reports, uh, several reports of, uh, of motor neuron uh, disease. Uh, our analysis did not suggest that there were uh, similarities among the cases that would uh, suggest any underlying uh, vaccine causation. Uh, venous uh, thromboembolic uh, events, uh, deep venous thrombosis and or pulmonary embolism were uh, actually something that were uh, studied in the pre-licensure trial and we did a follow-up on that analysis here. Uh, probably most of note, 90% um, uh, of uh, venous thromboembolic events uh, that were um, uh, confirmed had at least uh, one uh, known risk factor, for example, um, estrogen-containing birth control, uh, family history, uh, history of uh, immobility or other uh, medical risk factors, uh, including uh, pregnancy and obesity. Uh, so that's an example of applying uh, case-level uh, case review and uh, supplemental follow-up. Uh, when I talk about case-level analysis, it's important to recognize that we do not arrive at original, uh, uh, excuse me, we do not arrive at individual level uh, causality determinations for case reports. Uh, that's beyond the scope of the system to do. Uh, what we do attempt to do when we do case-level review is to assemble as broad a clinical picture of the reports as possible so that we can understand uh, factors such as concomitant uh, medications, uh, underlying medical risk factors, um, other uh, pre-existing conditions that might be related to the uh, reported outcomes. Um, I'm going to mention pregnancy briefly. The VAERS system uh, is, is not uh, ideally suited to uh, monitor pregnancy, particularly to monitor pregnancy outcomes. Um, there is uh, a pregnancy uh, registry, uh, which is really considered more of a, a gold standard way of monitoring uh, product uh, safety for pregnancy outcomes. Uh, and uh, we provide uh, a contact information for that uh, pregnancy, uh, pregnancy registry. And again, that is uh, another piece of the uh, comprehensive uh, post-licensure safety monitoring for this product. Uh, one final, um, Dr. Kylo, how am I doing on time? We're doing fine. Okay. Um, uh, deaths are uh, another uh, issue that has attracted um, some um, uh, media attention. Uh, again, this is a, a instructive uh, both in the uh, limitations of the VAERS system and in uh, how uh, analyses are conducted to shed further light on incoming data. So, in fact, uh, only uh, just over half of the 32 reports could actually be uh, verified through medical records or uh, autopsies. Uh, and among those uh, uh, 20 cases, uh, there were uh, multiple uh, and unrelated causes of death, uh, including uh, diabetic ketoacidosis, 
um, uh, confirmed infections due to uh, diseases that are uh, not the target of this uh, vaccine. Uh, and uh, as one might expect in a, a vaccine uh, targeted to younger individuals, um, uh, some cases of uh, cardiac-related uh, uh, sudden death. And uh, again, when uh, this was compared with an expected uh, background uh, uh, rate for this uh, population, no, uh, no signal uh, was seen. Um, so uh, again, to, to uh, summarize overall um, the safety uh, profile described here, broadly consistent with uh, pre-licensured uh, data. Uh, according to the uh, statistical methods, um, uh, both uh, syncope and venous uh, thromboembolism uh, met criteria for uh, warranting a, a further study. Um, that study is actually uh, ongoing within a, um, a related vaccine safety system um, uh, that conducts active surveillance called the Vaccine Safety Data Link. And uh, uh, the data from those systems, though, though not presented here in this paper, uh, has so far uh, not suggested uh, causal associations between the vaccine and either um, uh, and, and venous thromboembolism. Some background information and references about the Vaccine Safety Data Link uh, are provided as part of the paper. Uh, again, um, this is a large amount of data here, but it's, again, really only one piece of, of a very uh, wide-ranging and, and comprehensive uh, vaccine safety system that the uh, United States operates. Um, so probably one of the findings here that is, is, can be most translated into practice, uh, those re related to uh, syncope, uh, both the Advisory Committee on Immunization and the uh, Immunization Practices and the American Academy of Pediatrics um, have recommended a 15-minute uh, waiting period following immunization uh, to prevent syncope and to prevent uh, rare serious injuries um, and at least uh, one death that have occurred uh, following post-immunization syncope. This is a recommendation that applies uh, to all uh, immunizations, uh, not only uh, HPV vaccine. Um, I, uh, in my practice, I tend to think of uh, the waiting period as, in fact, part of a broader uh, process of vaccinating um, safely. I'm uh, deviating a little, a little bit here from the content of, of the article, but um, while this article focuses really on, on downstream events and uh, reporting of adverse events following immunization, I, I think sort of the process of of vaccinating safely as a uh, component, really, of, of a comprehensive approach to patient safety uh, really starts with um, uh, education, educating the patient using um, the vaccine information statement uh, that's actually uh, required, um, screening uh, adequately for uh, precautions and contraindications to vaccination, um, observing uh, waiting periods, uh, and uh, reporting uh, adverse events uh, when they when they come to attention. Um, thankfully, vaccines are uh, extremely safe medical products, uh, and while many providers may not have occasion to uh, to report adverse events following immunization, I think all providers have the ability to do those uh, upstream processes 
to try to ensure that, that vaccination is, is carried out in the office setting um, as safely uh, as, as possible. Um, so we did actually uh, use this article as, as a platform to try to strengthen, particularly talking about the, um, the waiting period. Um, again, we talked about uh, the fact that there are uh, specific uh, safety monitoring systems for, uh, for a pregnancy uh, and uh, with a new uh, licensed uh, bivalent HPV vaccine, uh, that manufacturer will also be uh, starting a pregnancy registry and there will be a, a similar uh, comprehensive post-licensure uh, safety monitoring system using many of the same um, systems. So um, it's important to recognize that, that this uh, an analysis, um, although it, it really covers a very large amount of data, the, the, the number of reports uh, covered here, about 12,500, uh, when I began working with the VAERS system about a decade ago, uh, was more than the entire number of reports received for all vaccines uh, within a year. Uh, so this is a very uh, large analysis. Um, it is important to recognize that there are a number of uh, inherent limitations to this system. Uh, it is uh, obviously passive, uh, passive surveillance, does not capture um, all adverse events. Uh, for the vast majority of cases, does not have the ability to make uh, individual level um, uh, causal uh, uh, determinations uh, for or uh, against a causal connection uh, with the vaccine. Uh, it is very much subject to the information provided by those uh, uh, reporting, and certainly we encourage all uh, providers who are in a um, position to report adverse events to do so and to provide uh, as, uh, as much and as detailed uh, information as they are able to, as that uh, greatly facilitates not only our review, but really the, um, the clinical and the public health community's overall uh, understanding of this type of information. Um, so again, uh, as one part of a, a comprehensive uh, post-licensure vaccine safety uh, monitoring uh, for Gardasil, uh, this uh, analysis, I think, is, is broadly consistent with, uh, with prior uh, data about the vaccine. Uh, those events that are, are flagged uh, or are flagged by the analysis for further study, um, in fact, um, uh, study of those was, was undertaken, in fact, well before the publication of this uh, uh, analysis uh, based, on, uh, based on preliminary analyses, and um, we would foresee uh, a publication of uh, further data from, uh, from these systems um, and also uh, available data on the bivalent vaccine and its safety uh, once those are available. So I, I think uh, providers can, I think, have uh, uh, confidence in uh, using this um, important uh, preventive uh, intervention and uh, can use this uh, information uh, along with vaccine information statements uh, and other resources to um, uh, counsel, uh, counsel patients and, uh, and reply to questions. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Iskander. Uh, again, once again, we really appreciate you stepping in uh, and uh, doing this summary for us. Uh, John was given not, not a whole lot of notice to, to be on the call with us today, so we really do appreciate him being here. 
Let's turn now to what the study uh, suggests for changes in clinical practice. John covered uh, many of those things. Uh, and the, those changes or implications might certainly apply to both the public health realm and clinical realms, in particular, uh, probably GYN practices and primary care practices, and what we might do to incorporate some of the lessons from this article into our practice. We would now want to turn to questions from you, our callers. Your questions can include how to use the information to make improvements, and we certainly encourage you to share your ex examples uh, that you might have and experiences uh, on this topic uh, so that we can all learn from what you're doing. Uh, we have about a half an hour for call, and I'm going to turn it back to Talari now, who's going to uh, give us some information about how to get in the queue for comments or questions. Talari? Thank you. If you would like to ask a question, please do so by pressing the star key followed by the digit 1 on your touchtone telephone. If you are using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Once again, that's star one if you have a question or comment at this time, and we'll pause a brief moment. Great. Thank you, Tori. And as people are getting into the queue, John, we might as well just go ahead and kick off the discussion here. Uh, you know, as a uh, practicing primary care physician, both of us are, uh, in fact, uh, I don't know how good your clinic does at reporting uh, vaccine uh, adverse events. You're a uh, pediatric practice, so you probably give a much larger uh, number of vaccines than we do. Uh, we do have one family physician, two family physicians who are part of our group, and uh, a number of internists. So our internists give a fewer number of, of vaccines, obviously. And I can't honestly say I know exactly what our reporting system is. Uh, which is probably part of part of the challenge that we face, and I'm wondering what is what is the best that you've seen in terms of uh, processes in the practice for reporting adverse events and for getting information into the various system. Uh, it's it's an it's an excellent question. Um, uh, right now, we we have the avail the ability to accept reports uh, via a secure uh, a secure web portal. Um, as well as through uh, uh, traditional uh, mail and mail and fax uh, methods, uh, we have um, we've recognized over the years that particularly as uh, as electronic medical records uh, make more and more inroads, that uh, both on the provider end and on our end as well, that having a more uh, seamless way to report via those systems. Would be advantageous. We have partnered uh, with the um, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare System, who have uh, uh, piloted a couple of uh, systems like this. They are not yet, you know, broadly functional or or available to providers. Um, I, the the best I can really say in the meantime is that. Um, and I, I will I will tell you that when I see something in my practice that needs reporting, it is not the easiest thing in the world for me to for me to report it. I, I will I will concede that point. I, I think it it sort of comes back to starting with the idea that um, you know reporting uh, product safety issues not only for vaccines but for um, therapeutic drugs for devices uh, is, I, I think, really needs to move forward as as part of a broader kind of culture of patient safety, uh, and and absolutely there should be 
technological reinforcements and, and technological uh, aids to that. Um, but in the in the meantime. Um, you know, although I, I had said earlier that you know we want as much information as as as, as possible, uh, it, we we would still rather people, particularly clinicians, report with whatever information is at hand, uh, rather than rather than not report. Um, just to address one other aspect of your of your question, uh, we have done some some provider surveys that that do in fact confirm your general impression that while pediatric providers have pretty good uh, brand recognition of the VAR system, uh, that uh, internists um, and others who may not have been sort of traditional. Uh, vaccine providers, but are now being asked to do more and more in that area, uh, don't have as much uh, uh, knowledge and uh, and awareness of that. Uh, and again, we are um, seeking seeking uh, different ways, including uh, this call, <laughs> to increase that awareness. Sure, great. Well, I have some questions I want to ask you about that. And at least if I'm having challenges reporting, I know that I'm in good company since you're there as well. And uh, Talari, let's see who's on the line. We have no questions in our queue at this time, but just a reminder, it is star one if you have a question or comment. And I am absolutely delighted to spend an hour chatting with John, but I would love to have others chime in on the conversation, again, either with experiences or questions about the, uh, uh, about the study or the, the, uh, the applicability of the study. So, John, would you say that your challenges are mostly in your office systems uh, and sort of general awareness, or uh, is it in the, the VARS reporting system uh, in and of itself that makes it most challenging? Um, I, I think that um, when the VARS system w was begun um, in, in, the, in the late 80s and, and early 90s, the the immunization landscape was 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 very different. There was really not uh, relatively little emphasis at that time on on vaccines for adults, and and it's been recognized now by uh, eminent uh, eminent study group after eminent study group that these are really underutilized preventive interventions in adults, and as they are are, are used more, we need to understand more about their uh, more about their safety. So. Uh, we have, you know, tried to innovate in VARES, uh, allowing secure web-based reporting, um, but I, but I think the, uh, in some ways, the the pace of change has uh, has outstripped, um, you know, some of some of our ability to keep up. For example, uh, in my clinic now. Uh, immunizations are primarily tracked through a state-based uh, immunization registry. And while we've had some demonstration projects in the past, again, the average provider does not yet have the ability to uh, seamlessly report or have their staff uh, uh, report uh, via, uh, via their immunization registry. So, so ultimately, I think what we need are uh, systems uh, in, that integrate existing electronic interfaces, um, that provide prompts, for example, uh, and, and, uh, and, and triggers for, for reporting. Uh, again, in some, uh, in, in many clinics, for example, uh, infectious disease or other required disease reporting uh, has standard protocols. Um, Again, uh, out, outside of some of the demonstration projects I, I uh, mentioned earlier, I'm not aware of any uh, kind of a, you know gold standard way to do that. But but certainly having a 
uh, a, a process or a policy in place, I think, uh, raises the awareness of, uh, of providers and, and provides them the, the tools uh, so that they can um, uh, report if and, if and when the need arises. Um, the, uh, there is a toll-free line for the VAERS system which is available to provide reporting support. Uh, that number is 1-800-822-7967. And, you know, uh, a simple procedure might, uh, might involve simply here, here's the reporting form, here's the secure reporting uh, portal if that's something that's broadly available to providers, and uh, here's the, you know, here's, here's the number and, you know, we encourage our our, uh, our providers to do that. I, I think um, it makes, based on my comments earlier, I think it would make most, most sense to do that in the concept of, of kind of an overall review of office uh, immunization procedures. Again, uh, vaccinating safely also includes uh, storage and handling, uh, vaccine record keeping uh, through immunization registry or whatever other uh, means and and again, um, as as I like to say, a lot of this is not just a good idea; it's the law. So, um, use of vaccine infra information statements is legally mandated. Uh, record keeping standards are legally mandated. Um, most reports received by the VAERS system are voluntary, but there is a, a small amount of uh, mandated reporting. So, I, I think uh, if I'm understanding the spirit of your, your question correctly, I think there are ways for offices to incorporate this into kind of a broader uh, broader procedures. Again, if you focus on a, a very uh, rare down, downstream uh, e event, I think that doesn't sort of lift, lift the whole practice, whereas if you focus on really uh, overall uh, quality improvement processes for uh, immunization, that may be the better way to go. And that sounds, uh, you know, that really helped me to think about the systemness of this and what, as an example, I might be able to take back to my staff or have us review or work on from an improvement perspective, which is, uh, I think, just to add a little bit more detail to what you said, uh, sort of storage and handling, record-keeping, appropriate administration, administration procedures, documentation, the vaccine was given. I think we call it, is it the alert uh, system? Is that right? I think that's what we call it in Oregon, at least, our online reporting of vaccinations, of uh, at least childhood vaccinations. Georgia's um, system is called GRITS. It's called GRITS. <laughs> How do you like that? I, I, I'm not sure I know exactly what it stands for, but I can remember it. Yeah, I like that, uh, particularly with a little Tabasco sauce. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and I think what you also said is, what would, because our staff is so used to using the alert system because we have to put vaccine information in there, uh, that if that connected to the adverse uh, reporting system or if the adverse reporting system uh, connected with, with the alert system or if they were one and the same, that would be very helpful. And then the last part of the, of the system is that adverse uh, uh, event reporting. And uh, so that gives me a context for understanding that, that I think the, uh, the bigger content, uh, the bigger area for improvement that uh, we might take back to our staff and work on uh, with them. And uh, so that was helpful for me. Uh, the, and, other, uh, um, the other point I, I think, which is, is um, sort of veering off into a, a little different subject, but uh, I, I think um, some uh, providers may, may be sort of in situations where um, 
the limitations of this system or conversely misinterpreted data fr from the system is sort of thrust in front of them and, well, what do you think of this? And uh, so again, I think some basic knowledge of, of the strengths and, and limitations of the system and I, I, I hope we've succeeded in providing that in, in, in this article. Uh, I, I think it's kind of part of that uh, immunization uh, knowledge toolkit. But I, I think there is also a, a um, this idea out there that the system fails if every single thing doesn't get reported. And, and that is really a, a, a misconception. Uh, we, we do have, in fact, 2 to 3 percent of the population uh, under active surveillance for vaccine safety through the vaccine safety data link. And so the goal is not, again, reporting of everything because, in fact, it is ultimately up to the provider's uh, a clinical judgment of, 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 of what is reported with the, with the exception of those uh, fairly rare, you know, ma mandated events for, for reporting. Right. Um, so uh, the, the fact, the, the simple fact that um, providers can say, hey, the, you know, this is, you know, this is what I can contribute to the, to the system. Uh, just a very, very concrete uh, e example. Uh, in 1999, when the first licensed uh, rotavirus vaccine was um, identified as being possibly associated with uh, innocenception and, and ultimately removed from the market, it was 15 providers who took the time to report those events that are basically, in, you know, in my view, kind of the, the heroes of that whole story. So really, it is really something where providers do, in fact, uh, have the ability to uh, to make an impact through uh, through what's ultimately really a, a very uh, basic clinical skill, which is uh, observation uh, combined with a clinical uh, index of suspicion. But again, um, the system does not fail if if every single possible adverse event uh, does, does not get reported. Well, that was a wonderful example. Uh, again, I have a lot more we can talk about. Let's just repeat the toll-free number uh, that you gave us. I think it was 800-822-7967. Is that right? Right. And the, uh, the, the VAERS website is www.vaers.hhs.gov, and that will include downloadable reporting forms, secure web-based reporting, a public access uh, data set, uh, and a variety of other um, resources uh, related to the VAERS system. Excellent. There's a, a related uh, website, uh, cdc.gov slash vaccine safety, all one word, uh, which again has a lot of good uh, information and resources. Excellent. All right. Uh, Talari? We do have a question on the phone uh, from Suzanne Levenseler with Martins Point Healthcare. Suzanne, welcome and thank you for speaking up. Sure, my pleasure. Um, I just had a question with regards to um, sort of the practicality of the 15-minute um, observation, and I know our exam rooms get, you know, turned over fairly quickly. I didn't know if there was um, something that um, you might share around, you know, whether using the waiting areas or other ideas around how um, practices might um, have the ability to, to monitor for 15 minutes and have that patient be seen and, and be um, observed. Sure. So I, I will I will specify that I'm 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 not talking about any off-label uses of products, but I 
in my comments, I, I will go a little bit be, kind of beyond the scope of, of what's in the what's in the published recommendation. So, in fact, that 15-minute period was was in fact based on on data that came out of the VAERS system that suggested that uh, when syncope was happening, uh, it was happening within that uh, primarily within that five to 15-minute period after vaccination. Um, you know, just in terms of of, of the mechanics of this. Uh, I have heard, uh, you know, providers talk about, you know, practically what you, what you may want to do is, you know, first of all, uh, maybe even va vaccinate with the patient, with the patient uh, uh, laying down. Uh, I think it's again, the, these are these are not the the published recommendations deliberately do not go into this level of uh, detail, uh, partially because it, it, uh, some of these uh, approaches haven't been studied, partially also just recognizing that different clinics have different uh, physical layouts and, and patient populations. Um, certainly use of the, of the waiting area is reasonable. Um, you know, other, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Slade, I'm, I'm sorry she couldn't be with us today. Uh, her background is in, in blood banking where they have many of the same uh, issues, particularly with, you know, adolescent first-time donors. And again, think about some of the interventions, uh, you know, they, they use. Uh, some of those might not be able to be directly applied to an, an uh, immunization setting, but you know, encouraging patients, you know, to to eat before they come to the office, uh, whenever possible, not having adolescent patients, uh, you know, drive themselves unaccompanied to and from the office visit. Um, so again, these are um, things that are not, uh, you know, hard and hard and fast recommendations, but um, you know, certainly we we recognize that. You know, 15 minutes is the length of an entire office visit, and so that there will, in fact, be some uh, uh, practical uh, aspects to, to that recommendation. But I, I, I will say this: that it is, I think, likely that um, our article is not the only place you're going to see more emphasis on this recommendation and more move toward uh, strengthening it, and I think it's a, 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 a good sign to get questions like this that reflect people, you know, uh, starting to think harder about the, the practical realities of this. Susan, a great, uh, uh, a great question, and I think that, uh, you know, one other opportunity, particularly if you can uh, train your medical assistants as an example uh, to assess the patient for their need for vaccinations and or uh, do a team huddle before the day starts. Uh, to assess who's going to need vaccinations uh, in your upcoming schedule, that some of those can be done before, you know, at the beginning of the visit, and then the rest of the visit can occur as the patient's there in the exam room. Therefore, you don't have the patient just waiting for, uh, for the observation period after the vaccination. Great. Any other questions? I do have one more question, if I Great. could, but I don't want to take anybody else's. No, please go ahead. Um, I was just curious around just in this the study if there was any. Um, correlation of um, when adverse reactions occurred, if it, did it matter if it was the first, second, or third, or was it, um, could it come up at any point, even if, they, if uh, an individual had had one immunization already? Um, so we, we do, we do uh, you know, obviously the issue, um, there is there's a couple of issues there. Um, uh, obviously, uh, one might expect uh, you know, more reporting after, um, you know, 
after the first dose, particularly in providers for whom uh, it's not only the first dose for the patient, but in which they're, you know, uh, uh, adjusting to the use of a uh, uh, a new product uh, as well. Um, you know, there uh, certainly were a number of instances in which um, minor adverse events, uh, particularly local and mild systemic re reactions, uh, appeared to uh, recur uh, after uh, second doses. Um, it's, it's, it, it is not within the scope of this system to look at um, whether uh, events which, though they might not technically be precautions or contraindications, might have been, uh, in a sense, observed by providers to be that. Uh, within the vaccine safety data link, there is, in fact, a study looking at that issue of whether um, the events that we might broadly categorize as, as minor, uh, including uh, syncope, uh, actually have an effect on compliance with uh, the full the full schedule. There is some recently published data from the vaccine safety data link uh, looking more broadly at the issue of compliance with multi-dose regimens in, in adolescents. And and as is as is true of any multi-dose regimen, your compliance always always uh, drops off a little bit. But there's a, there is in fact a, a specialized study going on within the vaccine safety data look that's meant to um, to assess just just the question you asked. Susan, thank you very much. Talari? Um, we do have a question uh, from Nakutia McKenatha with from Pennsylvania Health Department. Oh, yes, please. Um, yeah, you know, one comment, I, I is, is one is a question and also a comment, but I'll start with a comment. I have to say I was gratified by the moderator and also uh, John for seeing uh, when there is interest to report. So I'm in public health, and one of the things that we struggle with is actually having clinicians themselves be willing to report. So even if there are um, systems, electronic systems that make it easy to report, I think it starts with the willingness to uh, want to participate in reporting. And I am not sure how that can be achieved. That, that's one of my dilemmas. And I, I have surveyed uh, postgraduate uh, trainees in medicine to see whether they, there was any mention, uh, not, we're not talking about the course, but on disease surveillance or reporting just to impress upon them that um, the surveillance does have a loop that comes back to inform practice, such as is being done today in this article. So, uh, and uh, John mentioned about the interception uh, where we also know, for example, for the Western Nile virus, it was uh, one institute clinician who actually did report to New York City Health Department of a specific case. So in the case of the virus system, uh, various reporters do report the data, including the public and of course manufacturers, but in fact, reports from clinicians do have a different weight uh, just because of the completeness of information of the relevance of the clinical data that's being collected. Can I, what I, so I'm asking both the moderator and, and uh, also the, the elder, are there things that can be done to raise that level of awareness so that first there is uh, an, an inherent interest and not necessarily all, but on part of the clinicians, on why is surveillance being conducted and 
that they themselves are responsible for um, helping the system to succeed. Uh, Nkucha, thank thank you very much. I, I I do think, in fact, you hit on, in a sense, both the solution and and, and part of the problem. I I, I think ultimately, uh, incorporating this. Uh, into um, graduate training and, and, and postgraduate training as a professional expectation. Uh, the, the, the problem, as, as, as you know, you're actually, I think, much more familiar with, with um, uh, graduate and postgraduate curriculums than I are, is that there is so much these days, uh, particularly in the patient safety and quality improvement realm, that is, you know, competing for for space on these. Um, I, I, I guess, um, in a sense, maybe there is, is some analogy with with other fields where part part of the solution is. Um, you know, thinking about other ways we, we've improved immunizations and, you know, automated reminders, taking it away from the level of just the individual clinician having to, you know, remember to do 10 different things. Um, it will be interesting to see in the next several years, um, the FDA is under a legal mandate to unfold a, a very large um, active surveillance system for drug safety. And obviously, with, with active surveillance, you then, in a sense, are not taking providers off the hook for uh, making good observations and reporting, but you are, in a sense, providing, uh, you know, it's sort of like the old uh, belt, and, belt and suspenders analogy, that uh, while we are trying to work on curriculums and um, get, get the word out in, 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 different, in different ways, that we have a, a safe, safe safety net so that we are not, uh, again, in, just entirely uh, Beholden on on ever more busy uh, providers. Yeah, I think it uh, uh, that's a great response, John. I think it was a really wonderful question that again gets at the systemness of it. And um, as I think about our system, I have a desire to unload the physicians from as much of this responsibility, not necessarily from the responsibility, but from the work as as possible. Now, certainly there is an awareness and a desire. To, uh, to report, which is a preceding requirement. Um, but that awareness and desire is going to be uh, a better and easier to achieve uh, if, in fact, the entire system is easier uh, to work within. And uh, in terms of what we can do within the in the office, as I think I stated a little bit earlier, if we move our vaccine our vaccination uh, knowledge and processes more out of our hands, into the hands of, uh, in Oregon, I don't know about uh, where you are in Pennsylvania, but in Oregon we can't afford nurses in the medical practice, so we have medical assistants. Uh, and our medical systems are, are quite knowledgeable about vaccines, and to the extent that we can move 
that work uh, into their hands. And the more clinical work our medical assistants are enabled to do, the more they enjoy their job uh, and the, the greater value they are to the practice. Uh, we can put this into their hands as well, not just the administration, but the reporting of any adverse events, which would require the clinicians to connect back to the medical assistant as an example if they see something that is not, not visible to the medical assistant. Uh, but that also makes it easier for the clinicians to do the right thing. So I would think about our practices in terms of the systems for reporting we have and taking as much of this work off of the uh, off of the plate of the physicians, wanting to get it done, wanting the physicians to be motivated to see the value of it, but removing the work, which makes them a lot interested to, in being motivated to do this part of work, and and the stories that John told and what you said told about what you said about the West Nile virus, I think, are very pertinent for the power of individual observation, connecting frontline practices into the public health system. Uh, one practical suggestion is I, I went onto the uh, website and copied that link and I sent it back to the person who helped me with setting up my email from the IMS. So if people are interested who signed on on this call, perhaps they could be emailed that link. Um, you know, obviously, the, the, it, it does appear very simple to actually go on the website and complete the information. And I completely agree with you on the fact that this can be done very well by medical assistants. The only, the only thing that though I would emphasize is really the the judgment that a clinician would make, uh, who the clinician who was willing to report. We saw this happen also with the first anthrax index case for anthrax. Uh, that's what happened even with the market port. So I kind of I'm in a different camp that uh, feels that we can automate things and also. Uh, not really have the clinicians. Well, I agree completely that they are not the ones necessarily to give the vaccines, but having that willingness to want to engage it for, for public good, uh, feeling that I want to contribute to public health uh, because while you're taking your own care of your own patient, there may be other patients out there. And I commend you, the moderator, and also for John and Green to do this because the more we talk about this, the more we actually bring the relevance into the forefront. Thank you. Very much appreciate sure. that. Yeah. Anybody out there? And just a final reminder to star one if you have a question or comment at this time. All right. And if there's nobody in the queue, uh, we could probably just start to wind things down here. John, anything else on the you know, part of what uh, uh, this conversation uh, I think calls uh, to mind for me is the real important need we have to in the last conversation really alludes to this too, is to work on our systems of connectivity in particular between our primary care practices and our public public health systems. And those linkages um, uh, continue from my perspective uh, to be uh, fairly weak. Uh, and uh, like you, I'm both a practitioner uh, and someone who is very interested in public health. Uh, and I have uh, a lot of friends in the public health uh, arena and yet our systems of connectivity, of communication back and forth with each other, the data flows both both ways continue to be fairly weak. I I I, I wouldn't disagree. I, I think the the future is likely to be, you know, globally 
a, a better connected for a, a variety of reasons, uh, everything from, you know, uh, new financial incentives for electronic healthcare records and and better overall connectivity of the uh, healthcare and public health systems. Uh, again, this is you know hasn't quite come down to the come down to the bedside yet, but uh, I. I I think that that's again quite um, quite true. There's there's tended to be uh, this idea that if you need data, you 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 build a system. And I I, I, I really uh, recently heard an analogy where someone someone said, you know, the Navy sails its ships; it doesn't build its ships. And so it may be that. Um, there's a lot of data out there and a lot of potential connectivity out there, and so it's not that we have to build all these systems and then connect them. We may just have to figure out ways to connect them. Sure. That makes sense. Well, that's all the time we have for uh, for conversation. It's been a wonderful conversation. Dr. Skinner, appreciate your participation. Uh, thank you very uh, much. It's great having you. As a reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. And again, our next discussion uh, takes place on uh, November, where's my date there, uh, November 18th, uh, Wednesday, November 18th. And the discussion is by Dr. Michael Krasner. And the study is Association of an Educational Program in Mindful Communication with Burnout, Empathy, and Attitudes Among Primary Care Physicians. And that occurred, that article was published in the September 23rd issue of JAMA, sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Author in the Room is an interactive conference called Designed to Accelerate Changes that Can Improve Clinical Care. Thanks to all of you for being a part of the Author in the Room today, and good day.